Let's go ahead and start in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. This day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the phone of the Holy Spirit, amen. So in the whole scheme of things, we are today going to deal with Lessons 35 and Lessons 36. Uh, I rearranged a few things, but we're going to spend the whole day talking about freedom. Like Mel Gibson at the end of uh, Braveheart. Freedom! Huh? Yeah. Yeah. So... So what we're going to do, there is a lot to cover today, and I believe uh, for some of you who've done pre-theology here, you may be very familiar with some of it, uh, but I took notes that I had from my previous teaching of this and spent yesterday and today adding a bunch of other things. I don't know how orderly it will be. It will be probably one of the things that I'm experimenting on with y'all. And number two, um, there's a lot of stuff here that I probably could have added uh, to develop more of the natural law class. But once again, y'all are the guinea pigs, so sorry. Um, we've just looked at, at, at truth and the objective nature of truth and how it is embodied in natural law um, as our participation in understanding of God's eternal law. Now we have to look at freedom in relationship, particularly truth and freedom, law and freedom. John Paul II in Redemptor Hominis 12 says, you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Of course, Jesus said that. These words contain both a fundamental requirement and a warning, the requirement of an honest relationship with regard to truth as a condition for authentic freedom. And the warning to avoid every kind of illusory freedom, every superficial, unilateral freedom, every freedom that fails to enter into the whole truth about the man and the world. It's a lot there. So we're not just talking about moral truth. We're talking about um, the truth of who the human being is, which, of course, is connected, as we've seen, to our understanding of human nature and natural law. <coughs> Y'all should have read Very Tide of Splendor by now, particularly that first section after the introduction where John Paul II talks a lot about human nature, the natural law, and its relationship to freedom. And of course, just reiterating what we already know, that in, in our contemporary world today, freedom is seen as the highest value, the most important value. And in Veritas Splendor 31, he says that in a certain sense, and this is back in 93, all significant, controversial, debated issues have freedom as their crucial issue, as the, as the, as the crux of the discussion. And, and he acknowledges that freedom is a good thing, if understood properly, and it is something that is highly valued in our contemporary world. I really do believe if we ask most people in the West, what is the, the greatest value? And they would say freedom. And of course, what they meant by freedom, that might be a different issue as we're going to see. And so the problem is, is that freedom 
we don't value freedom for freedom's sake. I'm free. Okay, why? Freedom is ultimately a means to an end of something greater. But the problem is, as John Paul II says in Veridata Splendor 32, that these current trends of modern thought have gone so far as to, quote, exalt freedom to such an extent that it becomes an absolute, which would then be the source of values. And so here's freedom is an absolute. It's not connected to anything else. It's completely unhinged. All values flow from that. And this is, as we're going to see uh, next week, I think, at the end of next week, has a pretty significant impact on our understanding of conscience. So freedom is seen as that absolute ultimate value in our contemporary Western society. Nothing whatsoever should hinder its exercise. Now, how many, again, I I put a lot of different readings. How many of you have gotten to read that that Ratzinger essay on freedom and truth? So wasn't that amazing? Uh, I hadn't read that in a few years. It just blows me away. What, what an unbelievable, you'll have to read that. Well, y'all do, because you, I'm, I'm going to put something on that essay <laughs> on your, your exam. Get ready. Because it's, it's very Dr. Splendor is important. That, written a few years afterwards, is very important. And what he does is, he, it, it, Ratzinger goes to Marx, uh, and a phrase he read in the Communist Manifesto, that for Ratzinger aptly describes this concept, this sort of contemporary concept of freedom. He said, the state of the future communist society will make it possible, he says, quote, this is Marx's idea, to do one thing today and another tomorrow, to hunt in the morning, fish in the afternoon, breed cattle in the evening, and criticize after dinner just as I please. This is exactly the sense in which average opinion spontaneously understands freedom as the right and the opportunity to do just what we wish and not to have anything which we do not wish to do. Said in other terms, freedom would mean that our own will is the sole norm of our action and the will not only can desire anything but has the chance to carry out its desire. So here we have freedom connected to the will, which of course we know where that comes from, we're going to talk about it, and freedom is autonomy. Freedom makes the decision on what is valuable, on what we want, not any consideration of what is true, what is good, it's the freedom of indifference. Have y'all, have y'all studied that yet in philosophy, Occam and the freedom of indifference? Okay, well we're going to get to it today. So what happens then, if freedom is seen as completely autonomous, as the ultimate value, anything that is there to stand in its way to limit or prohibit freedom is seen as a major threat. And so what would be the one word that basically poses the greatest threat to freedom? Truth. Truth. And there's so many different ways of of explaining it. Truth, moral truth, but of course, moral truth connected, as we'll see, yes to the magisterium, but here specifically to human nature and the moral truth of the natural law. So looking at it, to have to act in accord with our natures, 
in accord with our, our understanding of God's eternal law, would represent a restriction of absolute freedom. And so this is why, you know, we, we can reprise this denial of any metaphysical category. Well, if there's no metaphysical category, I don't have a human nature. There's no natural law. Well, then I, I can do whatever I want. This was John Paul Sartre also. We're going to deny the human nature so man becomes freedom. But of course, to Sartre, where does freedom end up? In hell. But we're going to, we're going to see that. This is ultimately a denial of the truth of the human person and who he is and who he was created to be. We're going to come back to this over and over and over again. We're denying not only a moral truth, we're denying the truth of who the human person is. And so the basis of natural law is ruined. And this goes, of course, we go back to Occam. We can go back to uh, Kant, and then we end up in Nietzsche, and then we end up in Jean-Paul Sartre. And so for Sartre, Ratzinger talks about this. Human beings and things don't have a nature. And so as a result, if there's no God, there's no nature, this means, quote, that man, this is Ratzinger, man is condemned to a monstrous freedom. He must discover for himself with no norm to guide him what he will make of himself and of the world. So this is what freedom becomes if there's no human nature, there's no truth guiding it. But since this was written... Um, back in, in the, the, the 80s and the 90s of very Titus Splendor, really talking about the need for natural law, the need for an understanding of human nature. Um, how, how is this denial of truth advanced? The seeds of it were back there. We just have a culture of really moved towards it. True, which is all irrelevant. We're, we, at first, there was the denial of the meaning of human nature. There's no objective human nature. There's no objective moral law. What What are we denying now? Or what, want to reject because it restricts freedom? That God exists and there's certain ways we have to True, that's the basic denial, but this is pretty obvious. What is the thing we're denying? Where gender is your subjective experience, as we'll talk about. What is the thing we're denying? The body. The body. Goodness gracious. We're denying the reality of the body. I will not, I am a woman. Okay, no, I am not a woman, but I, I subjectively feel that I am a woman. I feel that I am a woman, and and I don't care if I have an XY chromosome. I don't care if I have testosterone running through my body. I don't care if I have male gonads that produce male gametes. I am a woman. So here, it's not just human nature, and as we'll see, and then the natural instincts of nature. My very body becomes something that must be overcome. And so we're, we're going to talk a lot about this um, when we... Uh, get into sexual ethics and bioethics, this is the, the concept of the disembodied will. We, we, or you're going to hear a lot about that. That, that postmodern man is considered as a disembodied will that exerts its freedom, that chooses whatever it wants, and there's nothing to limit it, even 
even the body. So this is the result of liquid modernity. This is the result of the transgender ideology. This is where it all finds its culmination. And so we deny human nature, we deny the body, and of course the truth expressed in the moral law. There can be no universal moral law because there's no nature and because it would limit my freedom to act. So if freedom is autonomy and we are disembodied will, who becomes the lawmaker? Yourself. Yourself. I decide what is right for me in my own perfect expression for freedom. But not only are we going to deny that, particularly as as Christians and Catholics, we're going to deny truth expressed as divine revelation. The possibility of God's revelation is excluded. Why? This is the atheism, or even an idea that God would reveal himself in this because it would trump my freedom. This is man wanting to become like gods, our own divine lawgiver. But this, of course, it can't be true. Veritatis Splendor 40, the rightful autonomy of the practical reason, moral reason, means that man possesses in himself his own law, but it's received from the creator. Nevertheless, the autonomy of reason cannot mean that reason itself creates values and norms. Not at all. We, we, we are unable to be able to do this. And, and I think what that, that sort of implies is that reason has a certain receptivity, which is something we're going to talk about a little bit later on. But still, so we receive the law in our nature. We receive the law as revealed. But here, freedom is so highly exalted, it must overshadow divine authority. This is the sin of Adam and Eve repeated. But specifically for Catholics, and we're going to see where this goes back to, it is not just divine authority. We're rejecting any authority, particularly the authority of the magisterium. The humanity vitae can't tell me what I can, can and can't do. I am the ultimate uh, arbiter of what is right. So with this, any out with a no anchor of truth at all, period, what does liberty become? Huh? Who said it? Who said it? License. Liberty becomes license. License to do what I want, when I want, how I want, where I want, with whom I want. A sole function of the will. And of course, we know where this freedom as a sole function of the will ends up is the will to power. Or completely guided by passions and as a motivism. But ultimately, we know this, that this view of freedom, does it really end up being free if we are allowed to just exert our will and choose what we want and not being guided by any exterior truth? Where does this freedom always end up? In slavery, yeah. We become a slave to our passions. Is the alcoholic, the drug addict, the sexual pervert free? Um... And of course, it ultimately descends into chaos. It's like, a, it's like, how many of you ever read or remember the, the we'll talk about this a little bit later on, the, the cartoon Calvin and Hobbes? They played Calvin Ball. Calvin Ball was Calvin made up the rules as he went. 
you, there, there are no rules outside of it. You, you can't, it's no fun, it's chaos. So Hobbes didn't want to play. So it works. But the, the, the proper view, the Christian view, and we know this, is that what Jesus said, we heard earlier, only the truth will set you free. The truth about the human person, the moral law, and God leads to authentic freedom. It's freedom to be and to act like you were created to be. Remember, doing flows from our being. And John Paul II says in Veritatis Splendor, God's law does not reduce, much less do away with human freedom. Rather, it protects and promotes that freedom. Why? Because it comes from God and expresses the truth of our creation. There's an ardor. There's a telos. We've seen that. And so, freedom has the obligation to seek the truth about the human person. Because if we don't understand who we are, we don't understand the rules, the, the, the ends built into our nature, then we're, and we don't know who we are, then we're not going to be able to act in accord with our good. There will be no human flourishing. So what we're going to do is, is look a lot at what true freedom is, but also some of the roots of how we got to where we are today, which if you read the Ratzinger article, should be very mind-opening in the history of philosophy to know where we are. One thing that John Paul II does mention in that section of Veritatis Splendor is much as postmodern man and culture exalts freedom, there's also a current or a, a strand of thought in our modern world that completely denies freedom. And that's going to be biological determinism. That as a result of evolution, we are biologically, genetically conditioned to act in a certain way. Well, the reason that I like or choose to eat these apples is not because I am free to eat the apples, but because, you know, over the years, we have been genetically conditioned to, to choose that. And granted, there are certain, not denying at all, that, that nature does play a part of this, that there can be biological factors that give me a disposition towards certain things. But that doesn't mean that my freedom is limited. Or even if it does mean my freedom is limited, let's say I'm an addict or I have, I'm predisposed to certain choices, well, that doesn't mean my freedom doesn't exist. We might get into that a little bit later on, but for right now, uh, we're just going to get into more fundamental, more fundamental issues. Um, so let's get down to here. The origin of human freedom as a good is founded in God. And there's a go to the catechism to read the section on freedom and law. Catechism 1730 says that we were created with freedom by God as master of our own acts. So human freedom has its source and origin in God and in God's freedom. And so using reason, our experience, and revelation, as Catholics, we can say several things about our freedom in relationship to God and his freedom the divine freedom. 
First is our freedom is totally dependent on him. It sustains us in our freedom. It participates in his freedom. So it's contingency, I guess. You could you could use that phrase. Also that our freedom is a gift. We are not the origins of our nature. We are not the origins of our existence. We're not the origins of our freedom. All that we have is gift. This creation is gift. And third, our freedom is finite and created. Unlike his freedom, which is infinite and uncreated. And along with this, and this is part of what I probably should have developed more in the natural law section, that our freedom is grounded in our human nature. And as we're going to see, I want to make a couple of points here. Not just our human nature as a metaphysical category, but in our personhood as a unity of body and soul. This is something very big and very tied to Splendor. That, that John Paul II sort of drawing from his ideas in theology of the body, talk about, we, we, we normally talk about, well, freedom is associated with the will, but we're not disembodied wills, nor does this higher spiritual faculty come just from the soul. We see the person in their entirety as that union of body and soul. So when we talk about it's rooted in human nature, it's rooted in personhood. Persons are free. But one of the things that he alludes to in Veridot Splendor, and I don't think he makes the direct reference, and we talked about it very briefly when we talked about our, our anthropology, and maybe that's where I should go back and develop it more, because I, unless I really don't remember what we talked about, that... One of the categories for understanding this idea that freedom is rooted in nature and not just in our, our, our soul or our metaphysical nature, but our very bodies, for Thomas, and actually for the church too, because the Catechism talks about it and John Paul II talks about it, part of understanding the natural law is understanding natural inclinations. Did y'all, did y'all study this? Dread, you're smirking. Do you know why? Oh, it's the squeaking. Cat. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Next year, I may have PowerPoints. I'll have time to make PowerPoints. No time this year. Maybe next year. Um, so I, I briefly alluded to this. So with, and we can almost call these in a certain sense, some of them are biological desires. I mean, this is the way I think we'd advance it. But still, for Thomas, these are inclinations that are written into our bodies, our minds, our souls, our will, that are part of human nature, and that when we act in accord with these, it's good to act in accord with these, human, these inclinations. So there are five of them. 
and, and I'm going to give you very brief uh, descriptions of them. This is, the first one is for the good. We have a natural inclination for the good. And of course, good can be described in many different ways. But for what is good for humanity, what is good for us, you could maybe even say good food, I don't know. The second is self-preservation. Right, we, we, we will, you know, said that, that dude who was, was hiking and he got his, his leg trapped in a rock and he had to cut it off himself. He didn't want to die. We'll cut our own leg off so that we don't die. Yes. Third is to know the truth. So in a certain sense, there is an end that each of these inclinations go towards. So our mind goes towards the truth. We have a curiosity. We have a desire for knowledge. Fourth is to live in society. We're, we're social beings. And then five is sexual union or marriage. Now we know now that these different inclinations or are rooted in biology, and I think even rooted in evolution. But they all tend towards something, sort of the Catholic vision, the Christian vision, even though it may have its roots in biology, it, 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 there, there's an end there, that God has put an end in there. Let me make another reference to that cartoon Bluey. There, there, there is an episode in the second season that I watched called Flat Pack which deals with evolution, and it's brilliant in the way they handle it. I'm not going to tell you, but find eight minutes later in your day, go get Disney Plus and watch that episode. But when we act, these are all parts of our human nature as human beings. And when we act in accord with these things, we are following the, the, the natural law in a certain sense, but we are exercising our freedom that leads to human flourishing. Again, we've got to avoid a, a, a mechanistic reduction of the body. That, that this is just pure biology. Um, and even though these are goods, they are goods written into our nature. There's a unity of body and soul. So John Paul II says, in Veritas Splendor, in regards to this, only in reference to the human person is in his unified totality, that is, as a soul, which expresses itself in a body, and a body informed by an immortal spirit, can be, can the specifically human meaning of the body be grasped? So again, it's not just our inclinations, it's not just our metaphysical categories, it's our bodies, our persons. Again, John Paul II, natural inclinations take on moral relevance only insofar as they refer to the human person and his authentic fulfillment. 
a fulfillment which, for that matter, can take place always and only in human nature. So, if freedom is a gift, if it's rooted in the truth of who we are, we're going to really revisit this later, freedom must be used responsibly. And if you look at the section of freedom in the Catechism, it really focuses on this. God desires us to act in accord with his will, the truth about the good, not according to our own design. So if he's given us this gift of freedom, if he's given us this gift of human nature, we have to use it according to the gift giver's terms. And following our own path, which is ultimately selfish, and and unhinging freedom from its source doesn't lead to happiness. But as we know, and as I think it's important to emphasize, he's given us his gift of freedom, but he's never going to force us to act against it or against our will. And of course, this gets to that core problem of the problem of evil. And when the Lord gives us freedom, then we there's that terrifying possibility that we could turn against him. This is the great risk in creating us with freedom. And while he might call us to conversion, he might try to change our hearts, he's never going to force us. This is the prodigal son again. The older son says, I am not going in that house. And the father says, I'm not going to force you. And that's the terrifying possibility. But he still, of course, can, can bring about good from our evil actions. And Christ on the cross is the perfect example about this. But this doesn't really tell us anything about the dynamics of freedom or how it works in reality. Or or what is this concept of human freedom that takes into account the moral truth, takes into account the truth about the good, and takes into account our nature. And so keep all of these in mind. This is all, these are all important. Because, again, here, if freedom is autonomy, then we would be enslaved if we act in accord with any of these natural inclinations. I should be free not to act in accord with these. I will not even be limited by these, these, these tendencies, these inclinations I have, because even those are bad, or because they limit my freedom. It's complete autonomy. So what we're going to get to and what has been taught, fortunately, in most seminaries these days, because we've moved towards the more holistic, Thomistic view of pink airs, is there's a big section in that book, and there's a big section that I had you read in Sources of Christian, the, the small one, Morality, a Catholic view, of two different types of freedom, two different concepts of freedom. And so since we've sort of established or we're establishing um, proper understanding of freedom according to human nature, what are these two types of freedom that pink hairs delineates freedom for excellence and freedom of indifference all right we're going to talk about these but we're going to start about the catholic view of freedom and of course pink hairs being a dominican highlights the Thomistic roots of these and rightfully so So this is sort of like the freedom for excellence is is one that is rooted in 
an understanding of the truth of our human nature and our natural inclinations to the ends of truth and goodness and happiness. And this is what I talk about, the dynamics. We talk about the dynamics of human action, but this is, this is what the process of a true human freedom looks like from what we've described as roots. So if we are ordered towards an end, beatitude, and we're ordered, these inclinations are ordered towards certain goods, therefore freedom then in the orientation towards truth found in the human intellect and the inclination towards goodness and happiness are rooted in the will. This is sort of a very Thomistic way of doing it. But ultimately saying that freedom assumes a telos, that that we're ordered towards certain things that produce human flourishing. So contrary to popular ideas, true freedom is not acting in opposition to our human nature and choosing whatever we want. So this is the false view of freedom that we're going to see as this freedom of indifference. No, my, my freedom is unhinged from truth. No, our freedom is, unhinged, is rooted in truth, but that truth is not there to enslave you. It's the truth about who you are. It's a system, in a certain sense, built into our nature. And so the more we understand the truth of who we are as humans, our orientation towards the good, the more free we'll be. Basically, nature does not restrict freedom, but guides it to its proper end. This is the freedom for the good the good that God wants for us, the good of human flourishing, of growth and excellence. So even though, if you see law and truth as something restricting, well then, no, this is, that freedom is going to seem limited. But these laws are not from the exterior, they're from the interior, and they guide us towards our end, or what is good. Well, yeah, well, that's what I think we, we, we go back to everything we've been talking about and the crisis of meaning, natural law, and uh, uh, objective truth. So, yes, it would, but that's why I'm dealing with freedom after we've established, at least from my Catholic view, that there is a metaphysical category, there are truths about the human being, and the human reason can know it. So, but you're correct. That's why we, we discussed uh, freedom afterwards. But here is the, the, so it's excellence, it's freedom for the good. And I know this view sounds kind of preemptive because we haven't gotten to this section yet. But freedom for excellence presumes virtue. Virtue-based ethic. Why? For, I know we haven't talked about virtues yet. Why would this be the case? that we grow in freedom through the practice of virtue. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Virtues are good moral habits that perfect our nature. They're not just habits for the sake of habits. There's we get better as we build habits that are rooted in our nature, prudence, temperance, fortitude, and justice. 
we become better persons. Remember we talked about that? We, we're the author of our actions, but in the dynamic of human, human actions, we become how we, our, our impact on the outside world changes us interiorly. And so we, we begin to learn the, the, the moral laws and follow the basics, the Ten Commandments, sort of the first step. This is what we'll see Pink Harris calls um, childhood. As a child, you've you got your training wheels. Here are the Ten Commandments. They're important. They're written in human nature. Ratzinger's big about that. We're going to see it in a little bit. But eventually we move to adolescence. So we move beyond the simple following of laws, although never rejecting them, to perfecting our moral technique. This is virtue. And as we grow in moral virtue, the actions become easier for us, more spontaneous, more creative, more perfect, more joy-filled. And we ourselves become more morally perfected on the inside. We become truly freer. We pursue excellence. It's like the it's like the person who is practicing with the Olympics. They, they, they've learned, you know, let's say the, the basics of skiing, and then they practice it. They may have to fall a little bit, but eventually they become awesome, and they're able to do all kinds of things because they become excellent because it becomes second nature, and this creativity flows from it. So let's look at an example of of, of this that Pink Airs gives in learning to play a piano, okay? When we first begin, well, let's, let's, let's look this way. You can almost compare these, I'm giving, we can make a comparison as you'll see. When we first begin, how many of y'all play uh, piano? All right, all right, or any kind of musical instrument. When you first begin, <clears throat> You realize, you get there, you don't understand anything about music, you don't understand anything about music theory. You could go there and you just sort of bang on the keys, whatever notes you want. This is like a savage freedom. There are no rules. You don't even know what the rules are. You don't care what the rules are. I'm just banging some out. But, but you soon realize that, hey, this is not truly playing the piano. This is not what it's meant for. So we must first learn the basics of music, the rules of musical composition, and simply how to play the piano. This is the first step. This is childhood, learning the laws. But eventually, you don't have to, to, to think about what note you need to hit or what keys you need to press because you are working and getting better at it. It's becoming second nature. And then, that's adolescence, as you practice the virtue, and yet you're going to mess up sometimes. But finally, what is the point? You end up, hopefully, becoming so good that you can compose your own works. You can even improvise creatively. Is that correct? Yeah. So, this person at the final stage who's grown in the good habit of playing the piano and has now mastered it and is an adult and is free, I mean, it can play these things, but yet playing within the rules, 
following the growing the habit that one one day of practicing influences the next day as you keep practicing you keep getting better it's a perfection of the habit who is more free the one who is in the beginning the kid just banging out i'm free don't tell me that i need to follow musical rules or the composer at the end who is more free Who? Composer. composer. Would anyone deny that? Well, sometimes, yeah. But, so, but they sometimes maybe you get it. That's the natural inclination, even if you want to say. Trey, you, you, are you going to go for the kid? Say, what about jazz? What about what, jazz? But the jazz is the ultimate, I think, expression of improvisation. You're, he's Miles Davis still followed the rules of music. Maybe they changed it a little bit, or they, they, but they, he still knew what they were. He became so good. I, was, I think it's great. Jazz is one of the old, improvisational jazz. Because here's the thing. Even though a person, a postmodern individual who doesn't believe in human nature and doesn't believe in virtue may say, oh, the savage freedom is better. Is there anyone who would prefer to listen to that kid hammer out chopsticks or just bang on the piano or the person who's the composer? Everyone wants to listen to the other one. If you want to listen to that one, you're an idiot. <laughs> you're either an idiot or you're a hipster college student. Oh, man, this is so awesome. No, it's not. It's terrible. Okay. But we noticed four things here, and we're going to wrap this up before we go into the, take a break. This is, I don't even know if we can finish this in two classes. I love talking about freedom. And we're not even in the good stuff yet. This vision of moral, there's four things here. This vision of moral freedom is more internal rather than external. Because you're, you're, you're acting in accord with your human nature, with your natural ends, rather than laws that are coming outside of you. You've internalized the laws. You become a better piano player. You become a better moral person. Excellence. Number two, it shows there's a continuity in growth. So, so one day of practice influences the next. As you keep practicing, as you keep mastering it, you should get better as you go on. So it's not isolated instances of, of moral behavior that are not connected. They're all interconnected, either in a positive way or a negative way. Three, the creativity in living the moral life, following the spirit. We're gonna, we're gonna, I'm going to put on Kind of Blue. I'm ordering, I'm ordering a new record player because I gave up my other one away. So we'll come listen to some jazz one day. Oh, Trey is excited. Trey is not as excited as he will be at bioethics when we talk about growing sheeps in bags. So, <laughs> creativity does not mean doing whatever we want apart from the moral laws, but applying them freely and joyfully in unique situations. Again, to use the analogy of playing a piano, Bach, Mozart knew the basic rules of music, but as artists, they both applied the rules creatively and with their own signature. This is why every saint is so different. 
This is where prudence comes in. This is where the virtues come in. Now, unlike the artist, here the saint draws on grace, which builds on his nature and his virtues to help him guide even further to his ultimate goal. This is the instinct of the spirit. So you're acting in accord with your nature. You're acting in accord with the rules written into your body. You're acting from the inside. You are becoming a better person. And you're going to be less likely to make a bad note. But if you don't follow the rules, you're never going to achieve excellence. You can apply this to cooking. You can apply this to sports. This proper view of freedom is Catholic. And where do we see the perfect image of it? Jesus. Jesus. His humanity. His freedom to love. His freedom to serve. His freedom to die. He chose these things. Yes. Oh, no, because unlike the artist, the moral agent has the spirit, has grace to perfect them. Yeah, yeah. So this is this is the freedom that we're, we're, we're going to be describing and we're going to be achieving and wanting. Freedom for excellence. And this is how Pink Airs describes it. It gets into a lot more detail. So what we're going to do is take a little break and then come back and see the second part of this where you look at Occam and all that other stuff. But we're, that's where we're going to get into some more Ratzinger. We're going to get in all kinds. We're going to see if we can finish it in two lessons. If not, we'll go to three and we'll just calibrate down the line.